Hey, hey, it's Puno, and you're listening to Girl Boss Radio. I am so pumped because today on Girl Boss, we're talking about something that affects 50 to 70% of people with uteruses before the age of 50, which means a lot of you listening right now might be dealing with this as we speak, and some of you might be dealing with it and you don't even know. You're like, okay, what are we talking about? Well, we are talking about fibroids and endometriosis. And you can't talk about fibroids and endo without talking about your periods. The current opinion on periods are they're just supposed to suck. Heavy flow, painful cramps. They're all just part of the package Aunt Flo brings when she rolls into town. But what we're not used to, what I definitely was not used to, was asking, is this okay? Is this normal? You know, for so long, those of us who menstruate, we just internalize this perception that your period is supposed to be painful, it's supposed to be bloody. When is it a sign that it is not just your menstrual cycle? It's something maybe more serious. My own cycle had gotten more than just a little bit out of hand, and at one point I was going through six Diva Cups a day. Yes, six. And six to eight night pads, completely soaked through. And I was still thinking in my head, is that a lot? I feel like it's a lot. (laughs) And I'm sure you guys are all hearing this right now, and you're like, girl, that is a lot. Well, I talked to my GP. She kind of just shrugged it off and said, yeah, some periods are heavier than other periods. Uh, yeah, I guess so. And then years passed by and my cycle was just getting heavier and heavier and it was getting painful. It got to the point where I was basically Dexter. I was an expert at removing bloodstains out of anything. Something I'm not gonna put on my LinkedIn profile. But it wasn't until years later, I was opening up to a friend about it and she told me, that doesn't sound normal. And I felt seen. I had to go through at least seven different doctors and then I finally found a doctor who actually listened to me and it changed my life. After my surgery, not only did I find out that I had a 4.5 centimeter fibroid, but I also had endometriosis. Today, it's time to give the uterus the space and respect it deserves. And we're gonna do this with Dr. Soini Hawkins. Dr. Hawkins is a minimally invasive gynecological surgeon who also had fibroids and endometriosis. And that was actually what led her to a career advocating for reproductive health. She's just one of those rare doctors that actually listens to you and believes her patients. Dr. Hawkins is not only helping to educate women in alternative options, minimally invasive options, but also helping to assure them that your period isn't supposed to be this awful experience that you have to grin and bear no matter how painful or chaotic it gets. I shared my fibroid journey on my Instagram account, Stress. I would love to hear your story. Let's keep this period conversation going. So let's get into it. You are a surgeon, a gynecologist that treats patients with endometriosis and fibroids, but you also had lived that experience as well. Was this before you were a surgeon or? So it actually was kind of like right in the heart of me deciding what I wanted to do with my life and my medical career. I was actually in medical school when I was diagnosed and it was whirlwind from there (laughs) because I had absolutely no idea I had fibroids and endometriosis. Yeah, it was crazy. So I also um, had fibroids and endometriosis. Mm -hmm. I found out two years ago and mm-hmm. I'm just so curious like what it, what were your symptoms yeah what made you proactive to do something about it so I actually didn't have symptoms initially I woke up with pain one day and at the time my husband now fiance then said okay that doesn't seem normal you don't usually complain go get it checked out we're like oh we don't want him to think 
we just don't want any this week but they're a part of the equation too yeah so yeah that was how he got here to be my husband today because <laughs> of his his push like at the altar and you're like remember when you helped me that was when i knew <laughs> <laughs> right and that was the beginning it was to just elaborate it was actually a quite scary experience i was diagnosed by my nurse practitioner i had just had my annual exam three months earlier and the doctor said nothing nothing didn't say your uterus is enlarged nothing he asked you have any problems issues felt around did a little pap smear and he was out and when i went and saw the nurse practitioner she was like oh maybe it's your fibroids causing your pain i was like huh what huh what fibroids what are you talking about so my uterus was 16 centimeters at that time. Wait. So yeah, it was pretty, it was more than three months pregnant. Yeah. So I brought out my measuring tape. Yeah. What is the size of a typical uterus? Eight centimeters. Eight centimeters? Eight. Okay. So like your fist, the size of your fist. Oh wait, this is eight inches. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oh my God, my fist is so tiny. I know, it's tiny. <laughs> it's tiny. Can you imagine two times, three times, four times? I have women in here whose uteruses are 30 plus centimeters wow. big. So this is 18 mm-hmm. centimeters right here. Mm-hmm. And that's how big mm-hmm. your uterus grew to. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. And, and I never knew it was there. I never knew it was even an issue. Like most people have heavy bleeding or some type of pain or discomfort, urination problems, back pain. Yeah. I had none of that. Once I found out the diagnosis, I started to have every symptom there was. Mm-hmm. I started to bleed excessively. And this is horrible. It was it was a whirlwind. My diagnosis wasn't typical of how most people will find out they have fibroids. Right. With my fibroids, I just had more excessive bleeding. Uh But you know what? I never counted the number of pads, the type of pads. I got the Flow app, and it got to the point where I counted eight full Diva cups plus six to eight soaked night pads in wow. one day is that oh, that's yeah. a, yes a lot that's like how are you standing up yeah and and i was like i think this is okay <laughs> <laughs> most women will come in and they'll say i've always bled this heavy i've uh, and, I, and if i said it to my mom or my grandma they'd be like eh, okay we all bled that heavy that's nothing but understanding that there is a difference between a normal menstrual cycle in a debilitating menstrual cycle and that that is not normal mm-hmm. is a huge educational piece I talk about it, you know, when I do things on social media, I'm like, okay, so what is normal? Because your normal might have you in the emergency room next week getting a blood transfusion. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you were quite weak when you were bleeding that heavy, weren't you? I was, and then so what they did was they did an iron deficiency test, and fortunately, I didn't have iron deficiency, surprisingly. Wow. Yeah, because you are supplementing yourself well. Yeah. That's why. So then this nurse practitioner is like, maybe they're fibroids. Mm-hmm. I mean, how long ago was this? Were you Googling? these things or it was when I feel like nobody was talking about it don't you feel like that sometimes I feel like 10 years ago nobody was having this conversation and fibroids didn't just start yesterday right so her thing was these didn't grow overnight you've had them for a while 16 centimeters twice the size your uterus should be and we started doing ultrasounds because then when she said that the question was oh wait a minute what if they did grow overnight because that sounds like cancer to me (laughs) and she was like okay let's do a couple of tests and I started seeing a gynecologist who basically followed me every three to four months, did repeat ultrasound, said, this is not cancer. But during that time period, I started to have cycles similar to how you just described yours. And it became a, okay, this isn't bothering me to... Like how you were talking about your iron levels, my iron was significantly deficient. I had to get iron transfusions twice a week. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. Wow. I went from nothing, not even knowing they're there, to within a year, I was having cycles every two weeks. I was hemorrhaging, essentially. I was anemic. I was working 100-hour weeks with a hemoglobin of seven, and it should be 12. And it was, I mean, it was a whirlwind, and I had surgery the next year. For me, when I turned 30, all sorts of stuff was happening to me. I think the first question was, do I have cancer? Is is the fibroid cancerous? Yeah, absolutely. Fibroids, by definition, are benign. There is a subset of tumors called leiomyosarcoma, which are cancer, that can be mistaken for fibroids, but they're super rare. When I was talking to my fibroid surgeon, uh-huh. he was also saying, he was like, sometimes they just don't realize, and they have like a grapefruit size 
fibroid in their uterus. Why is that? Is it because it's not that hard or? Location. Oh. Yeah. Location is everything. So I've had patients, I had, I've had a patient in particular I could think of who had a 20 centimeter fibroid, one fibroid, 20 centimeter. I'm gonna pull out the measuring tape. <laughs> it's gonna blow you away. That was outside of her uterus and oh what we call God. pedunculated and she never had any symptoms. She didn't even know it was there. She didn't She didn't feel the firmness in her abdomen. She had pain one day that sent her to the doctor, and that's when they found it. Location is everything. It's real estate when it comes to fibroids. We, we kind of get super focused on the size, but you can have a two-centimeter fibroid in the middle of your uterus and hemorrhage, right? Right. So can you explain why it affects your family plan? Sure. Potentially, because a lot of women don't even find out that they have fibroids until they get their first pregnancy ultrasound mm -hmm. like legit had no idea it was there they were small they weren't bothering them they get an ultrasound because they're pregnant and it's like oh boom the baby and the fibroid are playing together yeah. and it's fine so fibroids will be blamed a lot of times for infertility it's not always the reason why but it has the potential to be again usually because of the location so when fibroids are in that cavity inside of the lining the ones that usually cause a heavy bleeding it can essentially take up space that the baby needs, mm -hmm. right? Literally, it's just right there where the baby needs to implant and it makes it difficult to either get pregnant or stay pregnant. Increases risk of miscarriage, preterm labor, preterm delivery, late miscarriage or fetal demise. It, it really does increase risk with pregnancy depending on that location. Right, that's the point. If it is a real estate issue, you have eight centimeters in your uterus your baby needs to be implanted somewhere, yeah. and then also they need to grow. Taking up all the space. And they're like, what mm -hmm. is this thing? Yes. <laughs> I had to have the baby talk. Yeah. My husband and I have been kind of avoiding it for a bit. Did you have mm -hmm. to have that conversation? We did, and I feel like I didn't have a lot of support groups. There, there wasn't a white dress project. I didn't know that. I had the potential to not necessarily feel like fertility was a now absolutely must do thing. And my doctor at the time did recommend that if I did surgery that I should think about getting pregnant shortly thereafter. And I did. I had my first child, my fourth year of residency, two years after my surgery. And then I had another during my fellowship. I did a two year fellowship in minimally invasive surgery to get back to your first question as to why I do this. And at the end of fellowship, I had my second child. Oh, wow. So I was boom, 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 I boom. I knocked them out. <laughs> My best friend had a baby last year and I did her ultrasound before she got pregnant. She was like, let's just, you know, just to check. I have the ability to get an ultrasound by my best friend. Let's just see. Yeah, let's get in there. And I was like, oh, girl, you good. You got a little one centimeter baby fiber. Honey, that thing was 10 centimeters by the middle of her second trimester. So it grows during pregnancy. It grows sometimes. Yeah, because of all the hormones, all the massive hormones that can feed the fibroid in uterus during pregnancy. Sometimes it doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it will grow because of the hormones in early pregnancy. Does anybody know why fibroids happen? I like to tell people that fibroids are multifactorial. It's not necessarily one thing because there's a genetic factor, right? When we look at lineage and we look at family history, a lot of times we'll see that we see it genetically passed down. Hormones feed the cells of our uterus to grow fibroids. What we do know is that there are environmental factors such as the estrogen we consume in our diet. There have been even smaller studies that have looked at the things that we put on our skin that's in our cosmetic products for African-American women that have been perming their hair for years, the paraffins that are in those actual chemicals. All of those things have been looked at in studies, smaller studies nevertheless, but have been associated with fibroids in the way that they grow. So yes, to answer your question, hormones have a part to play, but there are other factors as well. Vitamin D deficiency is huge. Right? Vitamin D has been definitely well researched and linked to fibroid growth. So it's a lot. It's not just one thing. So, what are the stats? How many women typically get fibroid? 80%. 80%. 80%. 80% in reproductive years. And some sources will even say 90% in African American women. So, you in the room with all your girlfriends, yeah. you're not the only one. When you found out, was there anybody in mm -hmm. your family or friend group that had it? That's so crazy because my mother found out she had fibroids after 
I found out I had fibroids. So it kind of went the opposite way. Um, she found out she had fibroids and endometriosis after my diagnosis. I think what it did was it kind of perked her up to say, oh, hmm, maybe this pain that I have on my side is something else that's going on that's more woman or GYN related. Maybe I need to stop ignoring it. Um, and when she kind of honed in on it, she found out that she too had fibroids and endometriosis. Um, so it went in the opposite direction, but that was an enlightenment to me because I had never talked about it in my family before. You are giving permission to question your pain. Yeah. We haven't really put a lot towards it in the last decade. Now we're hearing about it more. Vice President Kamala Harris has actually put forth legislature that is going to put money directly in the hands of research specifically to look at fibroids. And she did that just before her vice presidency. So it's, it's, it's coming around. It's coming around. We've been having a discussion, but it's kind of been a slow rev. Now it's picking up pace. We're starting to see that this is definitely a pandemic that needs to be paid attention to because it affects so many women. That's what bothers me. If it affects 80% of women, why are we just finding out about this now? Yeah, there's no foundation specifically for this. It's not cancer, it's not heart disease. and. It's so interesting because a lot of times if I've, I've heard people ask that question before and they'll say, oh, because it's a black woman's disease. And so no one has really made it the headliner, right? It's not a black woman's only disease. It absolutely disproportionately affects black women, but it does not discriminate. Hi. <laughs> I know, right? Right. Prime example. Right. Hello. Hello. Um, I don't want to take anything or disqualify the fact that it disproportionately affects black women. Um, but I agree with you. We should have been putting more into the efforts to find out about fibroids a long time ago. Because if fibroids or tumors were growing off of men's penis all over the place and 80% of them I guarantee you the research would have been there a long time ago. Yeah, they're like, oh yeah, my penis was eight centimeters and now it's 18. I don't know. <laughs> hey, Carly. Hi, back again. Not so much in the shadows today. I mean, I got a little toe in there. The sun came out, so I was like, what's this like, you know? <laughs> Need a little bit of vitamin D. Exactly. How great was Dr. Hawkins? Oh my gosh. I love her. I love how easy it is to talk with her. Right? Do you have a doctor that's like her? No. Well, you know what, Carly? Everyone deserves to have a doctor that's easy to talk to. You're so right, Puno. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what the doctors and health coaches at Parsley Health do. Parsley Health? Yeah. It's basically like a personalized health team. I actually tried it out. Oh. They ask you a ton of questions about your lifestyle because their approach is we don't want to just look at symptoms. We want to know holistically how is your health. Wow. They create a plan that can cover a range of concerns, including fertility issues, hormone imbalances, gut health, but it's all like super tailored to you. Specific to every patient. Mm -hmm. That sounds amazing, Puno. Yeah. They take the time to understand what you're going through and really figure out what is the root cause. Thorough. And of course, we got your back. You can try Parsley Health for free and get $50 off your first month using the code GIRLBOSS. All right, clinky. Time for our favorite break, wine break. And speaking of wine, are you sick and tired of your drink going stale? Yuck. I know, it's just in the fridge, just sitting there. Don't you worry, Usual Wines is here to solve that problem. Their bottles are really cute. It's one of those bottles that everybody will go, oh my God, that bottle's really cute. And each bottle is a single serving, which means Usual is fresh every time. That means no more pouring wine down the sink when you can't finish that bottle. So you're gonna say bye-bye to flat or stale rosé. Bye. I don't like it. Give me the sparkles. I demand the sparkles. You got it. No problemo. Use the discount code GIRLBOSS to get your first glass on us. Peruse on over to usualwines.com. That's U-S-U-A-L-W-I-N-E-S.com. Or, you know, just check out the link in our show notes. Okay, girl bosses. Are there any of you out there that are on the hunt for the next level up in your career? some friends who might be interested in that. Tell me about your friends. Do they have their resumes typed? Yeah. Is their Zoom interview outfits ready to go? 
Got business on the top, athleisure on the bottom well, kind of thing. It might be athleisure on top and bottom, but we can fix that. So I don't know if your friends know this, but we have a girl boss job board. Oh my God. I didn't know this. You didn't? That's your role. I know. <laughs> I know. What's, what's happening? <laughs> Dropping the ball here, guys. Pick it up. So, so Okay, sorry. Hold on. Okay, got it. <laughs> There's a lot of really cool jobs on there. I just saw a job for um, Disney art director. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Youth to the people, social media Ooh, person. I love youth to the people. So good. Right? The kombucha toner. Oh, my God. Mm. For any of you other HR folks that are hiring, our listeners make fantastic employees they're here they're trying to educate themselves they're trying to level up mm -hmm. check it out at jobs.girlboss.com i think i read that you found that you had endometriosis during surgery yep. what is endometriosis endometriosis is literally when the lining or the endometrium of the uterus is found ectopically it's somewhere that it should not be may it be endometriosis of the uterus inside of the muscle of the uterus that's actually called adenomyosis in the pelvis which is where it most commonly is found it could be you know on the ovaries it could be on the fallopian tubes the bladder the rectum which usually is where the pain is associated that patients will come in and complain of it could be on the diaphragm and cause shortness of breath and chest pain it has been found on autopsy in the brain in the lungs so what i'm picturing right now is it's like spider webs it can be mm -hmm. stage four usually looks like that look at you oh. <laughs> that was a good description that was a great description so what the stages of endometriosis usually are given based on surgery and for the relation to reproduction so fertility but the spider web stage three, stage four is not necessarily what is typically seen all the time. Stage one, they don't have any of that. They just have tiny spots of lesions on their pelvis somewhere. And when doctors that specialize in it, which is one of the things I now specialize in, we go in and we look with these uh, magnified cameras. We're looking for that to either remove it or burn it. I remove it. I'm an excision surgeon. So we remove it. And that actually helps their pain because those lesions cause inflammation. And that is what causes the pain associated with endometriosis. Like pain meaning like cramps? Cramps. Some people will have um, pain that is almost like a shooting pain or a dull kind of nugging, twisting pain. It can be, it can be several different types. It can be in several different locations. Some people will only have pain with intercourse or they'll have pain um, when they have a bowel movement or when they urinate, depending on where the endometriosis usually is located. The symptoms sound somewhat similar to fibroids. Um, no? no, because fibroids is going to cause more dysfunction anatomically that's associated usually with menstrual cycles or like heavy menstrual bleeding and can be painful, but aren't always. A lot of women with fibroids have absolutely no pain. I had absolutely no pain. Right. And then with endometriosis, the pain comes before their cycle, sometimes even gets better after they're bleeding. And that's because of the estrogen effect um, estrogen hormone has on the endometriosis. So pain is definitely the hallmark of endo. Bleeding is a hallmark of fibroids. You can have endo and have pain and completely normal bleeding. You can have fibroids and have heavy bleeding and have no pain. So they are very much two separate things. You're doing ultrasounds, but endometriosis didn't come into the picture until surgery. Can you not see an endometriosis lesion in an ultrasound? No. No. So hard to diagnose because of that. So statistically, we feel that endo, if you read the textbooks, is about 10% of the female population. I think that is drastically underestimated because it's so hard to diagnose. You won't see it show up on imaging very readily like fibroids will um, because it's small lesions. So they could be there and be microscopic and you just don't know. If they are forming something called an endometrioma, which is a cyst on the ovary full of endometriosis, that you might pick up. But that's a small percentage of the endo population. Most of the time their exam is normal. The imaging is normal. You're going based on really believing, that's the key word for doctors that are listening to this, believing your patient when she says she's experiencing this type of pain and putting the puzzle together.
you know, for me, when I was looking into this whole thing, I was just like, why isn't technology here? You know, you think of an ultrasound, you think of an MRI, this is imaging, they should be able to see everything. Sure. But then when I actually looked at my MRI and I looked at my ultrasound, I was like, how are they seeing? Like, what? <laughs> I'm like, it looks like static. <laughs> like, how do you? That's hilarious. <laughs> But, but in a way, you're, you know, as gynecologists, you know, you understand how to look at those images, but it is also still pretty primal in terms of imaging. Yeah, it's, it's, um, we're, we're getting there. I think we would have a ways to go when it comes to the endo diagnosis. They are working on blood tests oh. to try to find it. They're trying to see if there is some blood work or blood tests that can be taken that might show that a patient has endometriosis. Oh my goodness. How can I? They're working on it. <laughs> I will donate to that Kickstarter. <laughs> that is so huge mm -hmm. because people are going to be like, do you have cramps? See if you have endometriosis. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because it's so hard to make that clinical diagnosis right now. There is no non-invasive way. There's no way without surgery to definitively say someone has endo. So they found out that you had, well, you, did you say type four or did you say? Stage four, <gasps> yeah. Stage four, it was everywhere. Wow. So I, um, my surgeon is who I went back and trained with. So when I got there and I saw the oncologist, he actually sent me to my surgeon because he was a minimally invasive surgeon. So he did robotics and laparoscopic surgery. When I went to him, he was like, oh, no, ma'am. These are too big, and you are not a candidate for minimally invasive surgery. Oh, your fibroids were <laughs> too big. My fibroids were too big, which was a, a gut punch for me ah. because I was like, I'm a resident, and I just got married, and I don't have time for this. But he did my surgery. I was out for eight weeks. It was hard. It was eight. Okay, pause. pause. Eight weeks? Pause for eight weeks. It was horrible. Meaning, was horrible. like, were you bedridden for eight weeks? I would say that I wasn't bedridden for eight weeks, but I, I put it like this. For two weeks, I did not know if I would stand up straight and walk again. It was such a hard recovery for me. Um, and it literally is what catapulted me to say, okay, yeah, no. This has to be a better way. This is what I want to go into in medicine. This is what I want to learn about. I want to be him because the fact that my surgery was hard to recover from had nothing to do with him. He did his job and he did a fantastic job. I had two babies right away. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even with stage four endometriosis, he cleaned that thing up. He cleaned it up and I did great. I never bled another heavy day since then. My baby is going to be 10 this year. It was fantastic. Everything went fantastic. Oh. Um, and I went back to him two years later and I said, teach me everything you know. <gasps> Wax on, wax off. <laughs> literally. Li literally. The man, I, I operated four days out of five days every single week for two years. I think I'm a very strong surgeon because of uh, that experience with him. Because it's not minimally invasive, what kind of surgery was it? So I had an open abdominal myomectomy, I meaning I had a C-section and went wow. home without a baby. <laughs> So it was, a, it was a large, what we call X-lap incision. I have a hip-to-hip -hip incision. Um, and then they, you know, if you've seen the pictures, they'll take the uterus out and then take off all the fibroids and reconstruct it um, when they do an open myomectomy to make it as perfect as possible. So now my uterus is this big. Wow. And my fibroids didn't grow back because that's the thing, too, that a lot of women worry about. Yeah. It's amazing, though, that you recovered in eight weeks mm -hmm. where you're completely cut open. Was this the mm -hmm. first time you ever did surgery? Like It was my very first surgery. Yeah. Oh. I had absolutely no medical problems that I knew up until fibroids and then the anemia that came after. Was your insurance able to cover that? Mm -hmm. Yes, thank God. Oh. Yes, insurance was able to cover the myomectomy. Mm -hmm. Man, because my surgery wasn't covered under my insurance. Sure. What did you have done, if you don't mind me? Yeah. Asking? No. Yeah, I had radiofrequency ablation with Assessa. Yay! Is that what you learned? So I do Assessa now. I was okay. the first doctor to start doing Assessa in Georgia commercially, and I'm just now. That was 2019 when I brought it to Georgia um, and started offering you it to patients. Okay, Dr. Bruce Lee was my was my surgeon. So you can't get like, better than that. You cannot get better than Dr. Lee. 
Because he's the one who created it. Correct. Yeah, he's the one how who did, created it. How did you know? How did you find out about him? So when I was at AHEL, which is our our uh, organization for laparoscopic surgery, I saw the assessor and saw the technology. And I actually, it's a funny story because I kind of bogarted my way into their dinner with the CEO. <laughs> like, hello, I'm Dr. Hawkins. I do fibroids. <laughs> Literally, like, can I get some, a glass of wine, please? <laughs> good i'm so not bold with the exception of fibroids and endo like this is this is when i get a little bold you're a warrior yeah Mm -hmm. and it was um something that i had my eye on and i wanted to learn more about and shortly after that the reps called me and the vp called and was like okay you know are you willing to do this fight because of what you just said because of the whole insurance coverage um, it was it's a hard process to bring something new into a market and it was going to be a fight and they prepared me for that. And so I brought it to, you know, I told my hospital I wanted it and my hospital said, yeah, right. We're not buying this equipment for you and only you. I um, mean, it took a year for me to convince them. Get yeah. out. That's yeah. how it works. That's how it works. And now insurances are starting to do better with coverage. But there are unfortunately a lot of patients that are still like you that want a CESA and they are not getting the coverage from their insurance company. So we're, it's still a fight. It's still a little bit of a fight, but we're getting there. Why do you think that insurance companies don't cover it? So Assessa is the newest technology for fibroids. And so since it's FDA approval, the rollout has, I don't even want to use the word slow. They've taken their time, gratefully so, because this is technology that you want to be successful. So the insurances weren't forced to pay attention at the beginning. In places like Chicago and Texas, I've gone there to train because they're doing it in higher volume and numbers, and they've been doing it aggressively since 2012. But then when you look at Georgia and Florida, and Alabama and Tennessee, you know, all these places in the South around me, they didn't know about the technology. So we weren't forcing the insurance to even cover it. Now we're being a bit forceful. I've gone to Capitol Hill. I've talked to legislators. I've written letters to Cigna and Blue Cross. And I've been aggressive about pushing for it because I think that women should have it covered just like a myomectomy is covered. If you can cut me open and take out my fibroids or take out my uterus, because they will cover a hysterectomy any day, then you should be able to give me this option to do a minimally invasive approach as well. A hysterectomy, which I didn't really know what a hysterectomy was before, but it is removing your uterus. (laughs) I've never been so protective about my uterus before, but Mm -hmm. I don't want to remove that part of my body. And you're a woman, and that is... Oh, that's okay acknowledgement. I tell women all the time, let's discuss everything, right? Because even though I'm in love with Assessa, I can do a robotic myomectomy. I can do an open myomectomy. I can do all of these things. I have a buddy down the street that can do a uterine artery embolization. Let's talk about all of your options. And at the end of the day, if you decide that a hysterectomy is ultimately what you want to do and it fits your goals and ultimately gets you to where you want, then that's what we're going to do. But to start there. That's drastic. It's kind of drastic when you don't even know what all the other options are. It's kind of it's kind of drastic, especially because, like you said, and I said, our mind does kind of go to our fertility a little bit when we heard, when we learned that we have fibroids. How could it not? You know what I mean? Even if you never thought about it before, you're like, oh, <laughs> maybe now it's time for me to think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're fighting for this surgery that also is a little bit of an unknown, but I guess what made you so confident that it is worth fighting for? It was when I was able to um, do my own research into it because just because I heard about it and it seemed like the fad thing to do, and I'm a young doctor, so I'm like, I want to stay on the cutting edge of technology, but I need the best for my patients, right? The outcomes, when I was able to actually look through the research, Assessa as a company was fighting for women, period. All of that kind of gave me the push to say, okay, maybe, you know, I need to vet this out some more. Then when I could see the comparatives between Assessa and a myomectomy, which is what I had, right? And see that, okay, patients can actually end up with very similar outcomes as far as their pain, their bleeding, um, the recurrence of fibroids and things like that were looked at. I was like, okay, how could I not offer this procedure that, you know, you could probably attest to you go home the same day. The pain is not tremendous. You're back to work. Like, you know, three days. How could I not offer that? How could I not, how could I not have that in my tool belt to be a option for women? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And the other thing that like kind of boggles my mind is mm -hmm. not all gynecologists are surgeons like you. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Correct. Is that like a level up? It is. It is a level up. Just like there are um, gynecologists and uh, OBGYNs that only do cancer, right? And there are OBGYNs that only do fertility. Like you're going to go to someone specific to put a baby in your uterus. I'm not going to do it. You don't want me to do it, right? You don't want me to deliver your baby. I don't deliver babies anymore. We kind of have these subspecialties within the field of obstetrics and gynecologists. And my subspecialty is minimally invasive gynecological surgery. So I went to fellowship for two years. I put off making cash money, right? I could have been out there with my friends with their new Lexus and, <laughs> and their new houses. And I was like, no, I'm going to go back to school for another two years and be a broke doctor and poor. And my husband's going to support me and I want to learn how to do this. So it is it is a level up. It is a step up in our, in our education and teaching. And now all I do is surgery. I mean, I do 25, 27 cases a month, um, wow. which is a high level amount of surgery for a gynecologist. Everybody that walks through my door is considering or contemplating surgery. So it, you know, it is necessary though. I think it's necessary for people to have these focuses because then I can truly say I'm giving my patient my best. I watched this um, documentary on Vice about Georgian women's health care and uh -huh. the accessibility to it. Are there a lot of gynecologists or gynecological surgeons in Georgia? It's Atlanta. It's yeah. Atlanta. You would think so. No. To answer your question, no, there are not a lot of me in Atlanta. It's literally the next thing I want to do. A lot of times I get asked, okay, so, you know, I, I feel like I'm fairly successful in my practice. I've opened my own practice. This is me. You know what I mean? But the next thing I want to do is legacy build. I want to bring in physicians that have the focus and care and compassion to do this and really focus on this. Delivering babies is absolutely fine. You know, I this what I used to do um, in my initial phase of my career, but I do think that women deserve a subset of um, doctors that are going to just be laser focused on what's causing you pain, what's causing your ailment. If I have to do surgery, I want to be able to offer you these minimally invasive approaches so you can get back to life because the technology is there. Why aren't we using it? Yeah. So when you were at the hospital and you had to fight for the um, Assessa surgery, was that when you were like, I need to open my own practice or was there, was that always in the cars? It's funny. I, my husband will say it was always in the cars. I will say, I just want to take care of my patients. Like I was not trying to, I wasn't trying to OD right on this um, voyage of mine, but Definitely along the way felt like it was super necessary. I'm in Atlanta. I thought when I moved from Baltimore to Atlanta, I was going to have to fight to find patients. I was going to have to, you know, kind of work my way to the top because I'm young and I'm a woman and I'm black. And it was going to be a struggle. Mm -mm, not at all, because there's just not a lot of people doing what I do. So it was a void. And so very quickly I realized, okay, there's a market here for this. It's a niche it is actually a niche that I have in what I specialize in. Um, and opening my practice was going to be the natural next step. Making myself more accessible and being able to, again, legacy build and bring other physicians on that I could teach to do what I was doing. So my husband will say it was always, always in the cards. <laughs> always in the cards. I saw that. <laughs> right, 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 right. But no, it, it feels great. It does. It does. It feels great to make the decisions and really honestly open opportunities to just do more. Was it scary? It was. It was scary mainly because it was going to be something I kind of had gotten comfortable not having to do. Because yeah. I, you know, I was with the hospital during my fellowship and when I moved to to Georgia, I joined a small practice and like they had to worry about everything. <laughs> I didn't have to worry about the overhead. Um, so now kind of having to pull in the complexities of not just taking care of the patients, not just taking them to surgery and making sure that they do well from a health perspective, but also making sure that I had the proper staff to cover to making sure that my facilities looked very nice and comforting and welcoming and, and making sure that I had a presence in advocacy and um, education and all the other components that I had already started doing before I built my practice. But now with this name behind me, I feel like it's so much more important. So the components of it is is 
a little intimidating, but it worked out. It worked out. And I and I kept my patience. I had a following when I started my practice. Oh. So that helps. Yeah, of co- I'm sure. I mean, I'd be like, wherever you go, it's fine. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it doesn't helps. matter. It <laughs> I was reading these reviews about you. And I mean, okay, I'm just going to gas you up for a little bit. But my other doctor had ignored my complaints for so long. But Dr. Hawkins listened and took me seriously. It goes on and on. But I think what I'm curious is like, why do you think this happens? Why do you think patients um, have lost trust in their gynecologist? Or is there something that patients can do to, to establish a better relationship too? Yeah, I do. I do think so. Um, I think that patients have to be their own advocate. Like, I think I was this patient for a little while. How is it that I went to my annual and my doctor didn't feel this 16 centimeter uterus and didn't tell me? Um, Even though I wasn't symptomatic, I also wasn't asking any questions. I wasn't like, okay, well, what was my exam like? And is everything okay? Or is there anything I should be asking or being concerned about or whatever? Or is this cycle normal? Because it probably wasn't, but he never asked me about it. Do you know what I mean? So I didn't, I wasn't forthcoming with that information. So I think we have to figure out how to be our best health advocates. We have to be able to speak up when it comes to our health. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but if we want to stop suffering, we have to. So we have to tell them what our symptoms are. We have to message them. We have to keep a diary. We have to Google, nothing wrong with that, and say, oh, I wonder if this is what's going on. Don't run, no, yeah, don't don't go crazy with it. <laughs> but it's okay to walk in the door and say, I wonder if I have PCOS. And sometimes it'll make the doctor say, huh, I wonder if you have PCOS. <laughs> Inception. And that's okay to do, right? <laughs> it's okay to do. It's okay to do that. So I would start there. I would say that patients definitely have to learn how to speak up for ourselves and our health. And then also, as we started off with what's normal, what's not normal. Suffering is not normal, period, point blank. If you're missing days of school and work, if your child is having a basketball game and you're like, I can't make it to the basketball game again because of my uterus, that's not normal. You know what I mean? Yes. I actually, I went to UCLA. They had this checklist to ask about your symptoms and your experience. Yeah. And when I read these symptoms, I just bawled. Yeah. I was like, wow. oh my God, that's me. Like, And then I just realized I have just been living with this. I, I, I was just like playing the excuses in my head of just like, oh, it's totally fine that you bled all over your sheets again. Like that's just, that was last month. And now you're really good at taking blood out of your sheets. Like, yeah, I, I just, I think I was just like so sad for myself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I, I don't know, like I yeah. didn't give myself permission to, to just say that I was in pain. Yeah, and that's that's super important to even just say what you just said the way you said it. To give yourself permission to to ask for help. To one wait, start and just acknowledge. <laughs> that's not normal that you know that. Okay, if I mix this peroxide with this much water, I can get this blood out of my sheets. Like that's not normal thing to just know how to do very well. You had to think about what day of the month is this gonna be can I actually go out and do this event or can I hang out with these people? Or, you know, like you, your whole social calendar was around your cycle. Crazy. (laughs) Crazy. Well, I want, I want to do a little role playing if you don't mind. Okay. So we were thinking like, what would it be like to go to my first OBGYN appointment? And I'd love to bring you on, on my little shoulder. Yes. I love it. I love it. Okay. All right. So we're going to like play some, uh, waiting room music. Mm-hmm. Do you have waiting room music in your, of in your office? Of course I do. Yes. <laughs> Is it good? It's very good. Sometimes it's too good. My friend Destin be like, what is this a vibe? Talking about what is going on? Like they're talking about sex in the way. <laughs> but it's the jazz version. Just leave it be. It's okay. <laughs> jazz version. Oh my god. I want the hot I want the Dr. Sayini Hawkins uh waiting oh room gosh. Spotify playlist. Thank you very much. Right? <laughs> <laughs> The high girl playlist, yes. (laughs) 
I mean, we're going to be talking about your uterus. Might as well. Right? Get it started. <laughs> okay. Okay. Wait. Rewind a little bit. Why did I pick this doctor? Why? Why? What do you look for or what questions do you think you would ask as a gynecologist to find the best yeah. gynecologist? I think I would want to know what potentially their specialty or interests are. Mm -hmm. If I'm going into an obstetrician, I know that I'm high risk because I know I'm high risk. Then I want to know I'm going to a high risk doctor. So I think I would want to research, does my symptoms and what I'm experiencing align with whatever their focus might be? Is that, do you do that by calling the office and being like, Google these are, girl, okay, Google. okay, let's, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> Everybody puts their bio on there now, you know, okay. so, yeah. or you could even Google what type of doctor might best handle this. Because if you looked up what type of doctor might best be able to surgically treat my endo or treat my endo, you might find a minimally invasive gynecological surgeon. And then you could say, okay, so who's a minimally invasive gynecological surgeon in Peachtree Corners, Georgia? And my name would pop up. You know what I mean? But yeah. So I found the doctor. I found the mm-hmm. I found the best one. Um, Googled them. Okay, they called me in. They're like, uh, Puno? Puno. The doctor will see you. I'm like, okay, yeah, coming in. I'm walking in. And... Um, I think the first thing is what what do I say? Yeah. Do I just tell them everything about my periods? Like I would say come armed. So a lot of times when you come to see me, I want to see um do you have any records? Like, have you had an ultrasound? Have you had labs? Is there something that shows that you're severely anemic? Not that you have to have all that stuff, but if you have it and you have gathered it and got a little file of your medical history, that is actually helpful to us. It is helpful to look through that. I mean, I don't want 150 pages. But like the pertinent stuff. Yeah. Um, and even if I have to figure out what the pertinent stuff is, it's fine. That actually is helpful to a doctor, especially if you're going in there with a concern. Should I print it out? Or just send it. Like I, my front desk, when they make the appointment, they'll ask you to just forward it to your portal. You have a portal. Mm. Not all doctors have a portal. Put it on your portal or email it to the front desk through a secure email and we'll load it into your file. And then when you sit down in front of me, I'll say, I see here that you had an ultrasound in December. What symptoms are you having? And let's go over your ultrasound together. I love doing that with patients to educate oh. them what's really going on with your body. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. When you were you were saying earlier that you need to be a better advocate for yourself, I don't know. Maybe this is just my perception, but sometimes I feel like it's going so fast and I don't I don't know if I'm making the most out of this time with mm-hmm. the doctor. So what would be your suggestion? Maybe even having like one or two things that you want to discuss. That'll lead us to ask questions like, oh, so you're burning when you start to pee. Do you see any blood in your urine? Have you ever had a kidney stone? Like, is this every time you have sex that you have this problem? Like, it'll lead us down a track to ask more questions because it is our job to be the investigator, right? But if you give us something to start with, we'll know where to go. If you come in and you're saying, you know, I feel tired all the time, I'm eating ice, then that's our clue to say, oh, maybe she's anemic. Oh, what are your cycles like? How how many days is your cycle? Um, how often do you have to change your pad? Is it painful? Like, if your doctor's not asking you those questions, you need to run. You need to, <laughs> you need to get up and kindly say, okay, thank you. I've had enough. No. <laughs> But for real, but we have to do the investigating. It is our job that when you come to us with the concern that we start to ask the questions that's going to lead us down the path to figuring out what's going on. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. My gynecologist and Bruce Lee, man, not only would they ask me so many questions, but they would also explain a lot of things. Yes. I was curious, is it rude to ask to record? Um. I don't think so. They might be recording me and I don't even know, child. (laughs) But I also shouldn't be saying anything that couldn't be recorded. Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. Especially in this day of COVID. I've had Zoom calls with patients and their families. I've had husbands on FaceTime because, you know, they're not in the office with us and things like that. So a recording, I think, would be fine. I mean, I think that it wouldn't be rude at all to ask um, if you did so. Because sometimes patients leave and they feel like, okay, I forgot what she said. Yeah. I give handouts, all of that. Okay, so I've got that information and I'm out the door. I'm feeling like my diagnosis, I guess, wasn't very helpful. 
or I, I just feel, I feel lost again. You know, I, I got this a lot when I shared my fibroid story on Instagram. A lot of women were saying, I did go to the doctor, but I still don't feel like I have the answers. Yeah. What would you tell them? I would say there's no harm in a second opinion. We are, what's the word, we're loyal to a fault sometimes. We're like, I've been going to this doctor for 10 years or they delivered my baby and I don't wanna to go to anybody else. But if the doctor truly cares about you, they will never remind you getting a second opinion. Second opinions are a thing. I have a lot of patients that come in for second opinions. I send patients sometimes for second opinions. I'm like, go talk to your reproductive doctor and see, are we all on the same page? Are we all with the same plan? Or sometimes it'll take a group of doctors to actually get there. I have many of patients who have their primary gynecologist and obstetrician, and they'll send them to, you know, send a patient to me like, okay, so just find out what Dr. Hawkins thinks, and then we'll figure out a plan together nothing mm. wrong with that mm. so when you leave sometimes feeling incomplete I don't want people to feel discouraged by that don't stop don't don't feel like that's the end I'm very happy to have patients walk out the door with a plan always even if the plan is I think I need an MRI do you mind going to get this for me and then let's do a virtual and go over the MRI together like even if you're not leaving with a full diagnosis and like okay book a surgery tomorrow you're leaving with a plan for the next steps. You should always leave that doctor's office with either some resolution, like here go your antibiotics, <laughs> or, or a plan for the next step. Yeah. Okay, let's say that there's a future where talking about fibroids and endo was completely normal. What would that look like? Yeah. An example of that would be knowing that in my room with my 10 girlfriends, probably eight of us have fibroids. So if I bring up the subject or I say, excuse me, I, you know, I, I can't sit on that white couch that you won't be shamed or feel like you're going to be shamed or you you won't feel awkward in that openness. And then also even going back to what we talked about at the very, very beginning, having that relationship where we're pulling in our partners our mothers, our family members, our little niece who might go through this when she gets older and having more of the discussion with our support system, um, normalizing the discussion will help with that too. And the support will like lead to occurrences where um, someone might push to actually, you know, want you to do more like how my husband was like, hmm. I want to get that looked at. So normalizing it is going to be super, super key in the future. And then hopefully over time, it'll trickle down to the insurance company's child and they will cover everything. Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> okay, so one of the questions and one of the things that we're trying to do at Girlboss is we're really trying to redefine success. What I'm curious is, how has your definition of success changed from when you were a child to maybe even when you first started in medical school to now? I'm just curious of all the different changes. Yeah. Oh, that's a deep question. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I think success for me has always been measured, which is it's not, it's not good. I'm not saying it should be like this, on how I felt like people perceived me. But that was like my young version of success, right? Um, I knew from a very young age I wanted to be a doctor. So I was like, I'm going to make my parents proud, right? I'm going to do well in school. I'm going to get into the school I want to get into. I'm going to get the degrees I want to get into. Um, my view of success has definitely shifted now with my own family because I want for my children to view their success differently. I don't want them to be doing something because they think it's going to make mommy and daddy happy. I want them to do it because it's going to make them happy. Right? Um, and I feel like I have been lucky and privileged enough to seat myself in a position where I am truly happy with what I do and successful. <laughs> I feel like I have um, figured it out as far as getting that just that balance in life to where I'm not. I do think I make a lot of people proud, but that's not what drives me. Making them proud would never allow me to just, you know, be in the OR at eight o'clock at night. Like I haven't eaten in six hours and I'm I'm loving this. You know, making them proud wouldn't fuel that as much as me just deciding that the patient waking up the next morning or in a couple hours and being like, okay, so what time can I peace out? I feel great. I'm ready to go. And <laughs> knowing that they're going to do fantastic. That is my measure of success. The same thing I measure my success 
in the OR with is what I am now starting to measure my success in life with is, is making me happy. Mm, I love that. When would you have that first moment? Very recently. (laughs) Probably with the start of my practice. Wow. It was like, I'm doing this for me. Yeah. And you're just like, I got this. (laughs) Yeah. I'm doing this for me because I want to, not because someone told me I should or not because someone told, because I'll be honest, a lot of people were like, girl, you want to do what? The overhead? I mean, it was definitely a lot of bumps to that support with the exception of my husband and my, I would say my, my family, my mother and my father were like, oh yeah, you got this. Like we, like I said, they were like, I, I, we've always seen it in you. Um, yeah. But I definitely had more naysayers than supporters. So I couldn't have been doing it just for the way it would look to other people. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So it's recent. Oh, wow. I'm so happy for your <laughs> success. I mean, honestly, like just going through this and, and finding a doctor that you're just like, oh, my God, I will do anything for you. Like you were yeah. just someone that you can completely trust with your body mm-hmm. is is really something so special. And I, I could just imagine so fulfilling for and you. And I don't take that for granted. I don't. Yeah. I don't take that trust that my patients have in me for granted, not one day. Mm-hmm. No. I think that's like one other interesting thing too is like, you know, just the way that you think, the way you've taken the time to talk to me about this, the way that you are with your patients, like in terms of legacy, is the plan to teach a ton? Teach in my way. Teach how I want to teach. Like I may not be at a university in a big research center, um, but I can do that within what I feel like is going to be good for me and my family. Like I like that I'm five minutes from my house and I can be there for my boys on the weekend. So I don't want to get to the level where that is sacrifice. So yes, I want to teach, but I'm going to bring new doctors into my practice. I'm going to teach them how to be business savvy, how to be a girl boss themselves when they're ready, how to build their own practices. I'm not going to skip the steps of getting the fundamentals in there because I do think that's a part of legacy building. But I'm also going to do advocacy stuff and do talks like this. And if I do decide to, you know, take on students, I might not go to the university and do it, but have them come here. And I also do research. So you can, I'm trying to, you know, I've tried over the years to figure out a way to not sacrifice my family for my success (laughs) or sacrifice my family for the next level of what I want to do. I'm going to take them along with me, but legacy building, I mean, when you have the opportunity to, I think it's, it's just a natural progression when you think about success. And especially in your field too, being able to almost like democratize minimally invasive surgery is incredible. I you know? never imagined it. I never, ever, ever imagined <laughs> I was like, I'm going to Atlanta, the big city. It's going to be a million of me. <laughs> and then you're like, hello? Right. Hello. <laughs> These patients are walking. I mean, I have patients that come in from Every, I have patients that have come from Washington State. I'm like, what are you doing here? Why? Why did you fly all this way? <laughs> what is going on? Because it's um, my And not uterus. to say that I'm dominating the whole nation, by not by far as many of us, um, but there's not enough of us. There's not enough. Yeah. There's not enough. Oh, I'm so happy. This is the path that you chose. And Me too. Man, thriving. And it's awesome, too, that you have been able to balance that and understand what your deal breakers are in your life, in your lifestyle with your family Mm -hmm. and finding success the way you want to. It's like it doesn't have to be university. You don't have to be. (laughs) I mean, I'm an online course creator uh, teacher as well. And I'm just like, you know, whatever. I just need to teach people. (laughs) Love it. Yeah. See? Yep. We find a way. Make it fit. find a way. Yep. Oh, amazing. Isn't Dr. Hawkins incredible? I mean, I learned so much from this interview, but most importantly, Dr. Hawkins reminded me how important it is to advocate for your health. Man, I'm a little bummed that I can't just take that tiny miniature version of her with me every time I visit my doctor. Wouldn't that be amazing? But you know what? We can always take what she shared with us today. Great advice on how to take control of the time we have with our doctors. And if you are advocating for yourself and your doctor is still giving you that little brush off, do like Dr. Hawkins said and run, run, run. Look, 
You don't have to stick with a doctor that's not listening to you or taking your pain seriously. For any of you out there right now who are afraid of sitting on that white couch or sick and tired of spending time researching all the ways to get blood stains out, I hope this episode made it absolutely clear that you are not alone. You're not alone. I really hope that after you listen to this episode, that if your friend, your roommate, your partner, they complain about their periods and they consistently keep doing it, that you share this episode with them and that hopefully one day they might share their story. To this day, I still get DMs from people thankful for just sharing. I mean, the only reason why I shared was because someone else had shared their story and that's how I found my doctor. So share, let's share, let's talk about our periods. Instagram, TikTok, we are at Girlboss. And if you want, you can record yourself like on an IG story or a reel or a TikTok. Who knows? You might even hear yourself on a future episode. If you want to learn more about Dr. Hawkins and her office, the Fibroid and Pelvic Wellness Center of Georgia, or if you want to learn more about fibroids and endo, you can check out links on our website or in the show notes. And if you got some feedback, we are always learning and want to continue learning. Please email us, DM us. We are listening. And if you love it, write us a review. But the best way you can support Girlboss is by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your friends. We even have a newsletter, Girl Boss Daily. Just subscribe and then you'll get it in your inbox. Until next Tuesday, this is Puno. Peace. Girl Boss Radio is a production of I Love Creative Studio. Original music composed by Nija. This episode was produced by Carly Pryor with help from Christopher Olin and Juliana Clark. Our editorial director is Clemence. And special thanks to Taylor, Nora Agency, Kaylee, America, and the Tiny Team. Bye.